you something as we start our study. Let's say your marriage operated as one marriage. There was no disharmony and no disunity in your marriage. How well would that marriage go? Let's say there is no disharmony or disunity in your family life. Now, for some of us, that includes not only our children, our grandchildren, and even our distant relatives. Okay? Because <laughs> Christmas is coming up, and we're going to see family members that we haven't seen in a while, and there's reasons for that, right? Now, imagine if there was harmony in all of our family relationships. How well and how beneficial would that family be for those a part of that family? Let's say that in a church fellowship, a church fellowship was so harmonious and there was such unity in the body of Christ, in the church, in the fellowship, how wonderful that would be and how advantageous that would be for those of us who are connected and committed to that kind of church family. Would that be great? Let me ask you something. Is that a possibility or is it a reality or could it be a reality? Now, it can be a reality because most of us would probably shake our head and say, well, wait a minute, what about my individuality? What about me losing my identity? What does that mean about me and my relationship to God and how he created me, uniquely me? Does that mean I have to stop being me? And the answer to that is no. God likes variety. God doesn't cookie cut us all to look and to act the same. Just take a second and look at your neighbor and say, thank you, Lord. Come on, look at him. Thank you, Lord. I mean, imagine all of us looking like Brother Larry. That'd be a sad world. David Harper likes to, you know, he poses in the office and he, you know, look how good I look, you know. I mean, imagine all of us looking like David Harper. What kind of world would this look like? Pretty ugly. Like I said over there, thank God for Karen because if it wasn't for Karen, they wouldn't have such beautiful children. She's the beauty, he's the beast. And since he's leaving us, I can pick on him for right now. Imagine if everybody looked like me. Wouldn't that be a perfect world? What are you saying by that? What's wrong with the way I look? I'm wearing a tie today. It'd be a pretty sad world, wouldn't it? I'm not saying you have to give up your individuality. I'm not saying you have to give up your uniqueness. But what we need to learn is to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And there are major things that are non-negotiable, and there are minor things that are always negotiable. And there are things that we have in common, one with another, as believers in Christ, that unite us, not divide us. And there comes a time when all of us have to put the things that are small and insignificant to the side and enhance those things that are major and that are non-negotiable as the priority so that we can come together as one. I mean, some of us are going to leave here this, this afternoon after we leave here, and you're going to go to eat somewhere, and I guarantee you that there are going to be people that are going to, uh, that are going to disagree, basically, as to where you want to eat. And someone is going to have to give in, and they're going to have to go somewhere where they may not really want to go, but they're going to go. And I guarantee you, even though they don't want to go there, when they go there, they're going to eat because they're hungry. And they're going to try to find something on that menu that they like. You know, I think sometimes marriages have to operate like that, if not most of the time. 
There are some times when you need to put aside your uniqueness in a marriage and decide that you're going to create harmony, not dysfunction in your marriage, and you're going to put aside your distinctive differences for the sake of the marriage and the relationship that you have with your spouse. There are going to be times in a family when your family is not going to be as harmonious as it needs to be, and you're going to have to put aside some of those, those things in order to bring the togetherness in your family. There are going to be times where you work, you're going to have to do the same thing. And guess what? Even in a church, there are going to be times when we're going to have to do the same thing. And so God admonishes us that we as a church must understand the importance of us becoming one and knowing the power of one. Jesus in John 17, he prayed one of his final prayers, by the way, that's recorded in the New Testament just prior to his death, that his church would become one. He prayed that his church would become one. In Acts chapter 1, when you find they left Olivet and they went to Jerusalem to await the the promise of, of the Holy Spirit when they were in the upper room, the Bible says in Acts 1 that they were together in the upper room. They were one group praying and waiting on the Holy Spirit to fall. In Acts chapter 2, we find them again being described as one group of people together in the upper room. They are unified. They are one when the Holy Spirit fell and the incredible power of the Holy Spirit changed and transformed everything, not only in their individual lives, but in their witness to the community. And thousands were saved. In Acts chapter 4, where they had a little bit of bump in the road and they're relating to each other and Finally, they were in need of being refilled again with the Holy Spirit. They had already received the Spirit, but now they need a filling of the Spirit. And so as a result of the necessity of being filled with the Spirit, they, it says they were one. They were of one accord. They were as one body waiting now for a filling of the Spirit so that then after that they went out with incredible power and witnessed and had incredible results. Throughout the New Testament and Acts and all over the New Testament, you find not only the importance of one, but you discover that without the church being together as one, being of one accord, nothing significant happens. Wherever there is dysfunction and disunity, there is an absence of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing significant happens to the church. It only happens when the church, the body, the disciples, the believer come together as one, can the Spirit then function, because where there is disunity, there is disharmony, not only with each other, but with God and with His Spirit. And if we want an incredible movement of the Spirit of God in our personal lives, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church, it's important that we understand the importance of functioning, operating under the power of being one heart, one mind, one spirit, one Lord, and one faith. The Bible constantly talks about that. And the reason for that is because we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. And in spite of our faith in Christ, we still wrestle and struggle with our own selfish, carnal tendencies and natures. And the New Testament is, is plagued with a plethora of opportunities for the people to become one and to put aside their distinctive differences. And so we have here this incredible challenge and this incredible plea from the Lord. It's described in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 through 7. Let's read it real quick. The Apostle Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to be one of one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, in all. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's talking about the power of one. And when a body and a fellowship come together under that, that incredible submission to the leadership and the lordship of Christ, and we put aside those, those, those minor things and we highlight the major things in the family, in the marriage, in the community of faith, their incredible potential for a movement of the Spirit of God to manifest itself not only in the lives of those who are being impacted by that, but through those so that we can have incredible witness in the community that is entrusted to our care. And so here we have in this passage, God through the Holy Spirit writing to a church in Ephesus. Now this church, I'm convinced, is not a church that has incredible difficulties. It's more than likely not a church that's not just struggling with normal church stuff. And by normal church stuff, I mean that there's normal people who are acting and behaving normally. And as a result of that, there are some opportunities, but it's not a dysfunctional church. It's not a divided church. And God is trying to continue to facilitate this church of remaining and staying one. So this is not really a rebuke. It's just some words to the penmanship of the Apostle Paul of reminding them, not only are you one, but do everything possible to stay one. So let's take a look at the plea that he gives in this text. The plea is the plea to oneness. And oneness is simply described as the quality of being united into one. The quality of being united into one. He wants, God wants his people to be one. And as we take a look at the text, first of all, let's look at the plea that he gives to the church. The cry that he gives to this church. Skip down to the next slide, if you would, WR, let's take a look at the cry for oneness. Verse 1, notice it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Stop there. Let's take a look at each and every single word. Let's dissect the words that Paul uses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I, the word I is a reference, it's a personal pronoun. Paul is speaking of himself, I, Paul. And we learn that this plea, this cry for oneness here is a very personal call. And the reason it's personal is because Paul has been to Ephesus on two different occasions. He went to Ephesus under his first missionary journey. He didn't stay there very long. They pleaded that he would stay, but he left. And upon leaving, he said, I will return. And on his third missionary journey, he finally returns to Ephesus. And the Bible and many scholars believe that he stayed and remained in Ephesus at least three years, not only proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but discipling those who came to faith in Jesus and battling it out with the religious elite who were sort of conflictual and combative with the church that God had started there. And so Paul is very familiar with his church. Many of them are converts as a result of his preaching. Many of them have been discipled by him. And now while he's in Rome and he's enchained and he's enslaved, he says to them, I, Paul, I have a personal investment in you and I have a personal investment that that, that gives me the opportunity now to speak into your life and to plead with you on a personal level. He's being very personal with these people that he loves dearly and he wants them to be one. And I think that's the heart of God too, who through Paul, after having sent him, is pleading because he has a personal investment in these lives that have been transformed by the grace of God. Not only that, but we see that there's a progressive reality in this text. He says, I Therefore, don't look over therefore. That's a huge sort of shift. It's a, it's a change in the structure of the entire book of the letter to the Ephesian church. I, Paul, therefore, therefore, as a result of all that I have written, then there should be a consequence or reality that takes place in your life. This is a huge shift in his letter. 
Chapters 1, 2, and 3 were doctrinal. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about discipline. He tells them here that there should be a, a, a very heavy emphasis on truth, and he takes three chapters to indoctrinate them, to teach them doctrine and incredible aspects about their faith and their oneness and their connection with Christ. And now he says, therefore, I'm going to shift. And the reason he makes this shift is he says, here in this word, therefore, all of this teaching, all of this truth should transform your life and how you live. What good is truth if it doesn't alter our conduct? What good is information if you don't live it? He's saying to these people, Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are doctrinal. 4, 5, and 6, I want you to live them out. There should be a progression here. Take the truth that I've taught you, now implement them in how you treat one another. And then notice in the text, it's powerful as well, this cry. He says, a prisoner for the Lord. He says, a prisoner for the Lord. Is Paul bragging here? Is Paul looking for sympathy or empathy from these people that he's writing to? Absolutely not. Notice he says, a prisoner for the Lord. He's imprisoned, more than likely in Rome, and uh, he is there, why? Because he has not ceased to proclaim and to preach the gospel of Jesus. He's there by choice, but he's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of man. He's not even a prisoner of his own choosing. He is a prisoner of or for the Lord, for the Lord's cause and for the Lord's glory, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord. And I think there's a subtle reminder here that when the Lord is the Lord of your individual life, there'll be unity in your marriage, in your family, and in your church. Isn't that true? I mean, the Apostle Paul is saying he's Lord of my life, and the reason why I'm enchained and I'm imprisoned in Rome is because he's Lord, and because he's Lord, it's not my will, but it's his will. It's kind of the same thing that Jesus prayed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And he's saying, I have given over my will to the Lord's will, and if you are to be one, if my plea is to be responded and reciprocated by you, then it's important, it's imperative that you understand that he must be Lord in your life as well as he is in mine. That means that you can't act selfishly. That means that you can't act independent of someone else. For when God is the Lord of your life, he's Lord of your marriage. And imagine if he is the Lord of your life and he is the Lord of your spouse's life. Imagine the incredible harmonious marriage you're going to have. And isn't most trouble caused because the Lord is not the Lord in one of the two or maybe in both related in the marriage? Imagine a family who everyone who is connected to that family has made him Lord of their lives. There's no selfishness, no self-centeredness, no ego, no pretentiousness. Everyone is submitting to the lordship of Christ. And as a result of that submission, imagine the kind of harmony that that would be. And isn't most dysfunction in marriage and in family and church as a result of Christ not being Lord? And so he admonishes them to make him Lord. Notice then the passionate plea that he gives to them. He says, I urge you. There's a sense of urgency here. He could have commanded them. He knew them. Many of them had come to faith through his teaching ministry. They'd been discipled by him. And because of his calling from the Lord, he had complete authority from the Lord to demand that they do this. But this isn't a demand. It's not even a command. It is a plea. But it's not just any kind of plea. It's not just any kind of cry. It's a passionate cry from a heart that is desperate for God's people to be one. 
And it's built and it's based upon, I think, his love for not only the Lord, but his love for them. And he's saying that, that I'm basing this plea on not only my love for the Lord and my love for you, but your love for the Lord and your love for each other. There's a cry here that's a, a passionate plea. Please, urgently, do everything that you can to answer the call that God has placed upon you to be one. And so he's asking them, basically, to receive God's call, which is what he's asking of us as God's people today. For you and I have an individual responsibility that we can either answer the call and receive God's call and say, yes, I want to be one in my marriage with my spouse. I want harmony in my family. I want harmony in my church. And I will be the one that will take the step toward whatever is necessary in order to answer the plea that God has placed upon my life and his people. So there's a plea, there's a cry. Secondly, we see that there's a condition that he places for oneness. What is the condition? The condition is found in the second part of verse 1. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. Don't skip the word you. It's a small little word, only three letters, but it's hugely significant in this text. He's urging you. You is not singular here. You is plural. And it helps us understand that what he's asking them to do is his, he's saying, in order for you to meet the condition of this oneness that I'm asking you to do and to treat each other and to uh, subscribe or to provide for each other is based upon an understanding of your connectedness with other believers. He's writing to the church at large, not to individuals. And he's saying it is you, the church, and it's, and it's incorporation here. It's a pluralistic approach. And basically he's saying you need to understand how we are interconnected. This is huge because if somehow we don't understand how we are interconnected as the body, then we're going to operate and, and, and work as single units who are not as connected as we should be. And he's saying, you are not independent, you are connected, you have been grafted into the body, and the actions of one affect the actions of the whole, as we've seen with Achan, is it not? And so he's saying to them, he's saying, you need to understand your connection. You're not individual, you're connected, you've been grafted together, you're one in Christ. Act as one. Not only is there an understanding in connection, but notice there's, a, there's an aspect in which we need to guard our conduct. For he says, I'm urging you together to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to walk in a worthy manner, to live out your lives in a way that is, that is worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to walk in a manner worthy of your reflection of the image of Christ grafted in your spirit and on your heart. To walk in a manner, to live in a way that you are conducting yourself as you're dealing with each other in a way that, that is worthy of Jesus. How many of you remember that, that little WWJD? Anybody here? Come on, anybody? There are more in here than there are in there. That shows you our age, right? What would Jesus do? And I think that's the cry that he's saying here. That's the plea. That's the condition. Before we act, before we speak, before we think, before we do, we ask, what would Jesus do? What's worthy of my Christ? Before I just speak, bleh. You follow what I'm saying? 
just whatever I feel, whenever I just bleh. Imagine the impact that's going to have on that relationship, on your marriage, on your family, on your church. We don't have a license just to speak whatever comes to our mind and just, just bleh and just, just leave nasty out there. That's not an option for believers. We have to guard our conduct. We have to speak in a manner that is worthy of Christ. We can't just do anything that pleases us in a marriage, in a family, or in a church. We must do only those things that please Christ and how we relate and do to each other. I know sometimes you wake up grumpy in the morning. Who, who wakes up grumpy in the morning? Yeah. What happens if you just woke up grumpy and treated everybody like you were grumpy and just said, you know what, they got to live with it. I'm just grumpy. <laughs> you know? How's that going to affect your marriage? How's it going to affect your family? How's it going to affect your church? It's important how we behave, isn't it? Surely we're not saved by how we behave, but behavior reflects how we're saved. It's important for us to understand that we must guard our conduct because it can be detrimental to the body of Christ. It can be detrimental to my family. It can be detrimental in my marriage. It can be detrimental where I work, where I live. And sometimes the harm that comes from words that are spoken are irreparable without the power of Christ. And then he says that we need to surrender to the call. It's interesting. He says that worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you remember where you were when you were called? Of no fault of your own, you were minding your own business, living your life of depravity and hell-bound when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he called you by name. Charles, Charles, I remember that day, and he helped me recognize my need for Christ and my sin, and he helped me see that Christ died on the cross for my sin against the Father, and he died in my place, and then he called me, and he invited me to place my faith and trust in him. He initiated that, in, that invitation, not me. I, was, I didn't give a clue or give a flip about him at that moment while I had been indoctrinated by the church, but he invaded my life, and he called me out of nothingness and out of nowhere, and and breathe new life into me when I willingly trusted Christ as my Savior. He didn't force me. It's not like that insurance agent that somehow rings the doorbell and wiggles his way into your house, and you find yourself sitting at your kitchen table, and you sign something after he leaves and go, why did I do that? You ever bought one of those gadgets that they used to have when salesmen knocked on the door and never lived up to the expectations that they had promised? You willingly... Received the invitation that God gave you, and you willingly committed your heart and life to Him, and you willingly said, I want you to be Lord of my life. It wasn't just an invitation for fire insurance, it was an invitation to trust Him as your Savior, but also commit to Him the leadership and the Lordship of your life, to commit to becoming a disciple and to follow Him. And now that call, He's pleading to them. He's saying to them, you need to surrender to the call when you willingly accepted Christ and you said, I will follow you, Lord. And he's saying, if you are really Lord of my life, are really Lord of, if, if God is really Lord of your life, then you will surrender and you will 
commit to be one. Because did God not send his one only son? For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have what? Everlasting life. He gave his one only son so that we could have a reconciled relationship between the father through faith in his son and he reconciled us to God and now he's saying that that relationship that I gave through Christ where I reconciled you with, with myself through Jesus and your faith in him, you will embrace that. Now I want you to be reconciled with your brother because God is not only interested in our relationship with him but he's also really interested in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a need, he says, to reconcile to God's character and our conduct. And he talks about the character of Christ and that we must make sure that we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do and what conduct am I involved in right now that reflects the image and the likeness of Jesus in what I'm saying, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, and how I'm acting. And if everyone in a marriage and every family member and every church member asked before they acted or spoke or said or thought or did, said, what would Jesus do? And we only did what Jesus did and reflected his character and his image and his nature. Guess how wonderful your marriage would be. Guess how wonderful your family would be. Guess how wonderful our church would be. And so he says then there's a concern that he has for the church in oneness. That concern is talked about in verse, verse 2, where he says, The concern for oneness is described with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. There's a concern here. God is concerned. And in that concern, he said, we must be so concerned about maintaining, creating oneness in the body and the fellowship in our marriage and our families that that concern leads us to this kind of activity. That concern leads us to this kind of action. Notice what he says. It says it should lead us to humility. He's saying to us that concern should be we must emphasize humility in all of our relationships and all of our dealings, whether it's our marriage, our family, and our church, in humility. And humility is not just the absence of pride. And the minute you think you're humble, you're not humble anymore. You are saying, well, I'm humble, but I'm proud of my humility. You stop being humble and you then become prideful. But humility is more than just the absence of pride. Humility is a state of mind that reflects in an activity and an action that I give and commit to someone else. It means that I deflate myself and elevate others. Jesus himself came that way. He became a servant. And yet he was the son of God who submitted himself to the Father and he served us. That's a sign, that it's, it's a character of humility. And imagine a marriage where the marriage partner says, you know what, I'm going to elevate my spouse more than me. Imagine a family who is filled with family members that are elevating each other more than themselves. Imagine a church family that has a presence of mind to see themselves in the reality of all their humility. You know, you can't be saved without humility. It's a characteristic of salvation. Only in humility can you recognize your need for Christ and your insufficiency to do it yourself. And in that humility, you submit to a higher authority. You submit to someone else. And humility basically starts a salvation, but it continues in our relationship with each other in that we elevate others above ourselves. It's a state of mind that affects how I relate to you and how I see you and I speak to you and how I serve you. But then notice not only with humility, it's an, exp it's an emphasis of humility, but it's, it's an expression of gentleness. 
word gentleness is also the same word in many translations for meekness. And meekness is not weakness. Did you know that this word is a coined word? It's a made-up word? It's kind of like a George Bush thing? I, I like George Bush. He just made up words. I like making up words. It puts people off guard. They don't know what you're saying. What do you say? <laughs> uh, there, there wasn't this word in their vocabulary for goodness and meekness. Why? Well, the Greek... Are the Roman? Meek? No way. Meekness is weakness. And we are strong. And there was no word for this. And they kind of had to conjure it up. And this word for goodness and meekness is not weakness because what this word simply means is strength under control. Power under control. It doesn't mean that you're powerless. It means that you have the ability to run them over, but you choose not to. It, you have the ability to just let them have it, but you step back and you say, no, this is not the time or not the moment. It's a time when you're in your car and you could cut them off. I, I love coming to, from, from uh, 47th Street and, and down from Derby. You know, they... they Man, it's, it's, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like insanity, man. You're not going to get ahead of me. Yes, I am, you know. It's crazy. And people use their cars for weapons. Seriously. And, and goodness says, you know what? I could cut you off, but I'm going to slow back and let you in. And they're probably going, I got it, I got it. You sucker, you sucker. And you're going, it's okay. I'll let you in. You know what I'm saying? Goodness and meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. Imagine a marriage that practiced that. Imagine a family that practiced that. Imagine a church or a life group that practiced that. Notice the third thing we need to exhibit patience. The word patience is an interesting word here. It simply means the ability to wait for an outcome. The ability to wait for an outcome. That's hard for us today, isn't it? We're in an innocent society that demands instant results and instant gratification. And, and we have, you know, a thousand channels on our cable television. If we don't like that, we can flip. And I don't know about you, but I hate commercials. And I'm always flipping because I hate them. And it drives my wife crazy. But they're, just not, they're not going to spend my time paying for cable. And then they're making me watch their stinking commercials. I don't get it. It's like double. It's got, they got hands in both my pockets now, you know. And uh, it just drives me insane. But patience is not one of my virtues. But I don't know of anybody in here who would say that I'm patient. Because as soon as you say you're patient, God's going to bring something in your life in which you're going to have to exhibit that. And guess what? Your carnal nature is probably not going to be very patient. And patience is something that is desperately needed in a church because, you know, this steadfast endurance, you know, I know you're not where you need to be, but I'm going to be patient until you get there. I know we're not where we need to be, but I'm going to wait on the Lord and for his outcome to, to play itself out. I know God's hand is at work. I know that he's operating. I know that at some point he's going to get me and get in my marriage and my family and my church. Ones with me. I'm just going to wait on God. And then lastly, well, next to last, exercise sustainability. 
It's interesting in this text, he says, bearing with one another. And many of the commentators put in love, and they kind of combine that all together. But I like to dissect it out because there's a sustainability of bearing with one another. You know, there are times when we're just going to have to bear each other's burdens. I mean, sometimes in a marriage, you're going to have to bear your spouse's burden. They may, they may go to work and then come back that day unexpectedly laid off. Or they may be diagnosed with a terminal disease, or they may have some catastrophic thing happen in their family, or they may lose a loved one, or they may have this, this, this incredible failure that they have not been able to overcome, and they're walking crippled for a while, and, and, and they've been totally disgraced or whatever. But there's these burdens, there's these heaviness things that sometimes our spouses have, and you're just, as a spouse, you're going to have to come alongside them and bear with them and hold them up and walk with them. And there are times in a family when you're going to have to do that. In your biological family where there's someone in your family, I know of many people right now who are taking care of loved ones and, and parents and all of that, and, and it's become a burden for them. But, but, you know, there's incredible blessing when you bear the burden of someone else in your biological family. And in a church family, isn't it great to know that you can go to your life group and say, I've got a burden, and you lay it down, and you know that in that life group as you share it, knowing that those whom you share it with are going to leave it in the group, and that they're going to pick you up and they're going to elevate you and carry you through that difficulty in your life. But isn't it great to know that on Sunday we can come together as God's people in a setting like this, and if I have a burden that's really heavy, I can walk down the aisle and kneel and pray and know that the people there aren't whispering little things in other people's ears. I wonder why they went down or did you know what's going on in their life today? But instead, they're coming alongside me. And many times that happens here where some of you come and you put your arm around them and you join them in prayer. Uh, life was not meant to live alone. The Christian faith was not meant to walk alone. And there are going to be times in your life you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. Trust me, there are people smarter than you and stronger than you and better than you who have tried it and have failed. Well, you don't know who I am. Really? And we need to understand that there are times we need others to walk alongside of us and to carry our load with us, not for us, but with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And lastly, in that little text, notice there's an empowering love that takes place. He says love. Love here is the word agape. It means unending love. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to have a marriage where there's unending love? No matter what you said or did or how you acted or sounds that came from your body that you knew that you would love no matter what. No matter how your hair looked in the morning when you got up or how bad your breath stunk, they still loved you. Wouldn't it be great to be in a family, a biological family, where you know that no matter what you did or failed to do, you were still loved? Wouldn't it be great to be a part of a life group or a church where people understood that you're human and you're carnal and you're sinful just like everyone else is, and that not all of us are perfectly, beautifully polished saints in some celestial exposition for God, but we're all just sinners saved by grace, struggling to live the life and we all fail while most of us fail in ways that are less visible than others it's still great to know that when we fail there's a church that unconditionally loves us no matter what now it doesn't give us a license to act jerky but it's great to know that they'll embrace us and love us anyway 
Imagine a church that has these kind of concerns. What would it be like? Then lastly, notice the commitment that we must give, and we're going to close with this. I know it's 12.03, but it's an important study for us. I promise to be shorter next week. (laughs) That's why we're starting 15 minutes earlier. Anyway, verse 3, notice what it says, the commitment to oneness, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The commitment is that we must have a desire for oneness. Where do you get that? The word eager. The word eager is an interesting word. It speaks of, of a, determinated, a determinated effort. It speaks of an exertion of pursuit. It speaks that we desire it so much that there are no limits to which we will go in order to attain it. Why? Because there's a desire to be one. And I wonder if there are times when we just flat out don't want to be one with our spouse. Sure there are. Are there times when you're rubbing elbows with a family or maybe especially during the holidays where there are relatives that you've had, you know, some little things about in the past and you know how they are and they know how they are and everybody knows that. You know, is there a desire for oneness in that family to put the differences aside and at any cost you give the, the disciplined, determined effort to pursue unity. How about in a church? Do we desire to be one? Or is it a oneness on my terms? There has to be desire, and our commitment should be to desire, but secondly, notice our desire should be to defend oneness It says that we should be eager to maintain. The word maintain is an interesting word. It simply means to guard. The word maintain means that that we are to guard, we are to be watchful so that nothing happens that 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 would forfeit, that would hurt, that would quench the spirit of unity in the body. I'm going to maintain it. It it describes something that is already a reality. And so because it's a reality, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that it stays that way. That I personally am going to be accountable to maintain that unity. And I'm also going to hold others around me accountable to maintain that reality. And I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. And I think once unity is attained, that unity has to be defended. It has to be guarded. It has to be watched closely because we know how we are. And you can lose it just like that with a misspoken word or the wrong kind of action. The wrong kind of display of attitude. And then thirdly, notice we need to defer our oneness. It's interesting, he said, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. We have to come to the realization that unity only becomes a reality when we are yielding to the spirit of the Lord. Because, you see, I don't have the power in and of myself, nor do you, nor do all of us together to make unity happen without the spirit of the Lord. Wherever there's an absence of unity, there's an absence of the Spirit working. But wherever there is a yieldedness to the Spirit's activity, there is a unity that is authentic and that is genuine and that benefits everyone. 
And in the flesh, I can't do it, you can't do it. In your marriage, in your family, in your church, it's something we must defer to the Spirit and we must look to Him to empower us and enable us in our insufficiency to step forward as we yield to Him to keep in step with the Spirit so that through His activity in us and through us, it can become that reality. And once we defer to the Spirit, I think there needs to be a demonstration on our part that we act in the right way because He says, in the bond of peace. Peace is the bond that brings marriages and families and churches together. Because where there is the absence of peace, there is no bond. Peace is the glue. You ever been in a marital relationship where there was no peace? How devastating that was to that relationship, wasn't it? You ever had a relationship with someone in your family where there was nothing but the absence of peace? Maybe it was for no fault of your own. Maybe it was because of a sin. Maybe it was because of a circumstance. Maybe it was because of some action on it. But there was no peace in that, in that family. And as a result of that, result of that when you get together and, and you get together at Christmas and there's no peace, how, man, how it's not fun, is it? You ever been in a church fellowship and a community and a setting like this and you could just sense the tension and there was the absence of peace we've had people visit here who said you know we're looking for a new church home and you say why I said there's the absence of peace in our church and we're looking for a church where we sense the peace of the lord i wanted to ask them i said well do you sense that peace here but i didn't want to really want to know their answer Peace is the bond. It's the glue. It's what brings us together. And if we're not careful then to reinforce the command that God gives us, we'll have nothing but the absence of peace and the result of that absence, which is disharmony and disunity and everything else that goes with it. Whether it's in your marriage or your family, your life group or our church. God wants us to be one. So, what is our response? What is my decision today? What is God saying to me personally? And then who am I going to tell about it? First of all, we have to decide, do I have to decide, is there a decision I need to make today? Maybe in your marriage there's an absence of peace. Maybe in your family there's an absence of peace. Maybe in your life group there's an absence of peace. Maybe in our church, or maybe this is not your church you're visiting today, but maybe in the church that you belong to there's an absence of peace. Are you the cause for that absence of peace? If you are, what do you need to do about it? And if there's an absence of peace in your marriage, what are you going to do about it? If there's an absence of peace in your family, what are you going to do about it? If there's an absence of peace in your church, what are you going to, what is my decision today? How, how am I going to own up to my responsibility and how am I going to then deal honestly with God in, the, in, in coming before him? And you know what, Lord? I am the cause maybe for some of the peace. I'm not all of the cause. Don't take all of the blame. That would be foolish. But maybe there's something that you could do that could, that could sort of make a difference in, in how you're bringing peace into the equation.
So what is your decision today? And what are you going to do about it? And who will you tell? Let's pray.